This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Hello, and thank you for joining the program today. We're going through Namkar Pal's text, Mind Training Like the Rays of the Sun, a commentary on another mind training text titled The Seven Points of Mind Training. We've come to the section on the commitments of mind training, and in particular we have been discussing a slogan that appears amongst these commitments, train consistently to deal with difficult situations. When encountering difficult situations, we can react in a number of ways, but usually we want to be free of them as quickly as possible, don't we? By definition, a difficult situation is something we don't want, and that we will do our best to get out of or to turn around so that the pain falls on someone else, unless we're some kind of masochist and like the suffering. But if we look closely at such fight-or-flight reactions, we will find too often that neither lead to satisfying resolutions. Often the situation escalates and becomes worse. For instance, if someone annoys you and you scold them, their resentment can mean that a slight disagreement can quickly turn into a full-blown argument and even a broken relationship. How often do we put perceived hurts and offences into our emotional cupboard labelled hurts and offences and bring them out from time to time so that we can use them as weapons in other disagreements? Is this how we deal with difficult situations with other people? Well, that kind of response just ensures that the pain stays and grows. It's not actually dealing with the situation so that it's no longer troublesome. It is ensuring that the situation's sharp edges can be used again and again to inflict more pain. But the arsenal is within ourselves, and the weapons we store do far more damage to the one wielding them than the one intended to be harmed. The question then is how do we train consistently so that in difficult situations we harm neither ourselves nor others? Not only that, but can we actually turn a difficult situation into an advantage for ourselves? As far as Buddhism is concerned, we not only can, but we have to. We have no choice about encountering difficult situations. That's just the way life is. And so it makes a lot of sense if we can use them not to harm any being, but to benefit ourselves. This is part of what is known as taking adverse circumstances into the path to enlightenment, and the most we can make of difficult situations, the faster our progress along that path. If you were with us for the last program, you may remember that Nam Karpel listed five of the more difficult situations we usually find ourselves in. They involve people we have some kind of close connection with, whether positive or negative. The first refers to people very close to us, like parents, our spiritual teacher, and so on. The karma of getting angry with such people is extremely serious, he says. Those we live with are second on the list because we are in such c- constant proximity to them, and third are our rivals. If something bad happens to them, we could find ourselves rejoicing, which is not so good. Then fourth are those who accuse us of doing something we did not do, and fifth are those we dislike. Even though nothing bad has e- ever happened between us, it is easy to criticize or get angry with them. The last time, We looked at the relationship between parents and children and what drives their anger for each other. So today, let's continue with the others. But before we do, let's set our motivation as usual. And, as usual, let's try to make it a bodhicitta motivation. 
so that this program becomes a cause for our enlightenment so that we can best help others. So please do like that, but if you shy away from that motivation, at least think that this program will become the cause for your own enlightenment. Thank you. Those inhabiting the second difficult situation Namkarpel mentions are the people we live with. It is quite obvious that these are the people we are most often in contact with and so we have the greatest opportunity to create both negative and positive karma in relation to them. Don't we have more arguments with our partner than our enemy because we tend to avoid enemies and don't come into contact with them much. However, if living with a partner we're with them every day and sometimes all day every day, so disagreements can arise easily and often. Of course, if we still believe that they care for us, we may be able to get over the pain of the argument in due course, but it leaves a scar or even an unhealed wound that is just aggravated every time another argument arises. Over time, this may produce a lot of negativity and a poisoning of the relationship. Dealing particularly with betrayal in a wide sense of the word, Dr. Stephen Stosny addresses this difficulty in an article titled Why We Hurt the Ones We Love and Let Them Hurt Us on the website www.psychologytoday. Dr. Stosny's biography on that site reads, Stephen Stosny, Ph.D., is the founder of Compassion Power in suburban Washington, D.C., a consultant in family violence for the Prince George's County Circuit and District Courts, as well as for several mental health agencies in Maryland and Virginia, he has treated over 6,000 clients for various forms of resentment, anger, abuse and violence. He has taught at the University of Maryland and at St. Mary's College of Maryland. His article is subtitled, When You Look in the Mirror, Whose Image of Yourself Do You See? And it reads like this. For nearly three decades, I've worked with people who, in one way or another, have either betrayed loved ones or been betrayed. In recent years, both the frequency and types of betrayal have exploded in my practice and those of my colleagues. More people seem entitled to betray the trust of loved ones if I feel like it or to get my needs met. Betrayal in intimate relationships occurs when a partner lies, cheats, surreptitiously uses family finances, chronically criticizes, stonewalls, yells or abuses. Each act violates the implicit promise that gives us the courage to love in the first place. No matter what happens, the person you love and trust will care about your well-being, never intentionally hurt you. Dr. Stosny goes on to explain why it hurts so much to be betrayed by such a person. Love relationships are mirrors of the inner self, he claims. We learn how lovable we are and how valuable our love is to others only by interacting with the people we love. Young children never question the impressions of themselves reflected by caretakers and peers. They do not think that their critical, stressed-out mothers or their raging fathers are just having a bad time or trying to recover from their own difficult childhoods. Young children attribute negative reflections of themselves from significant others to their own inadequacy and unworthiness. Suppose you had internalized your body image based on reflections from a funhouse mirror which made your hips look a mile wide. You would think you were in deep trouble 
and that no diet could help. Once you've internalized such a negative image, you distrust even accurate mirrors. People who are gaunt from eating disorders actually see themselves as fat when they look in a mirror, and that reflects little more than skin and bones. Even those who do not have eating disorders, but who are told repeatedly as children that they were too thin, are likely to see themselves as thin adults, despite mirror reflections that show a few extra pounds. When it comes to physical appearance, at least we have lots of other mirrors to compare to the distorted funhouse reflection. But there are no reflections of love, other than those we get from the people we love. If you judge how lovable you are based on reflections from someone who cannot love without hurt, you will have a necessarily distorted and inaccurate view of yourself. The instinct to believe the information about the self that loved ones reflect weakens somewhat as we grow older, but it remains active throughout life. You would probably laugh, or at least not get angry at a stranger who implied that you have green hair. But, if your husband or wife says it, you are likely to run to a mirror. The default assumption is, if your partner is displeased, there must be something wrong with you, and you need anger or resentment for protection. No matter how much we argue with loved ones about their criticisms and put-downs, we're likely to believe them at least unconsciously. We might not agree with a particular flaw pointed out, but on some deep level we'll perceive a defect that must be defended. Some part of us buys into the blemishes reflected in the mirror of love, even when we know intellectually that our loved one is distorting who we are. This hidden pressure explains why successful and powerful people are just as vulnerable as anyone else to the many forms of betrayal in their love relationships. Of course, the mirror of love can also reflect good news. If you learn how lovable you are and how valuable your love is from compassionate caretakers, you will naturally have a more realistic view of yourself in love relationships. You'll be disappointed and saddened sometimes, but you will hardly ever feel inadequate, unworthy, or unlovable. Just as important, when you feel sad or disappointed, you will know that you can do something to improve your emotional state, if not your situation. Your sadness will be short-lived. You may feel bad for a while, but then regroup and do something that will make you feel valuable once again. The mirror of love generates energy when it reflects value, and de depletes energy when it doesn't. A distressed or misbehaving child can make us feel like failures as parents and thoroughly inadequate. A raging or rejecting parent can make a child feel powerless, inadequate and un unlovable. A distracted, demanding or hostile lover can make us feel disregarded, devalued and rejected. After working for thousands of hours with people trying to overcome painful relationship problems, I am convinced that we use resentment and anger to punish loved ones not so much for their behavior as for our painful reflections in the mirror of love. We want to attack the mirror because we don't like the reflection. The only way out of this morass is to stop viewing emotional pain as a punishment inflicted by someone else and to learn to act on it as an internal motivation to heal, correct and improve. This will lead to a deeper self-compassion and put us more in touch with our deepest values which will, in turn, inspire more compassion for one another. 
You can love without hurt, but only if you use pain as a signal to heal and improve rather than punish. All forms of intimate betrayal share a common fundamental motivation whether the betrayer cheats, lies, abuses, steals, stonewalls, yells or criticizes. That motivation, usually unconscious, is to gain a momentary feeling of empowerment from the adrenaline rush of violating deeper values like caring about the emotional well-being of loved ones. The rush makes them feel more alive, but only for as long as the adrenaline lasts. As the rush diminishes, self-doubt and depression emerge, creating an urge for more of the stimulant. Like all forms of stimulation, more and more of it is needed to produce the same effect. Betrayal, whatever form it takes, will likely increase in frequency and intensity over time without intervention. The way out, for betrayers and betrayed alike, is for each person to create more value and meaning in life. This is utterly necessary, whether or not a couple afflicted with betrayal decides to repair the damaged relationship. Trying to repair the relationship with open wounds of betrayal, or to build a new life apart from the relationship, is fruitless and ultimately dispiriting. If you feel betrayed, healing and growth begins with the realization that you are not damaged, but your relationship is. You must heal first, and if you so choose, attempt to repair later. You must heal first, to love and live fully. Focus your emotional efforts on healing and growth. Healthy relationships will follow. And that's Dr. Stosny. So this in some way addresses how to deal with difficulties you may encounter with those we actually live with. But in this category, we could conceivably also include our workmates. We do, after all, spend at least eight hours a day of our week with co-workers, and I've often been asked what to do if they are difficult. Of course, I recommend staying calm, always treating them with kindness, and doing whatever possible to help them. In this way, we at least have the chance to win them over. In an article in the Harvard Business Review titled Make Your Enemies Your Allies, Brian Uzi, the Richard L. Thomas Professor of Leadership and Organizational Change at, Orth at Northwestern's Kellogg School of Management, together with journalist Shannon Dunlap, takes such basic recommendations further. The article also addresses the issue of rivals, the third of Nam Kaupel's five most difficult situations. And this is what the authors write. John Clendenin was fresh out of business school in 1984 when he took on his first managerial position in Xerox's parts and supply division. He was an obvious outsider, young, African-American, and a former Marine, whose pink shirts and brown suits stood out amid the traditional grey and black attire of his new colleagues. I was strikingly different, he recalls, and yet his new role required him to lead a team including employees who had been with Xerox for decades. One of his direct reports was Tom Gunning, a 20-year company veteran, who believed Clendenin's job should have gone to him, not to a younger, non-technical newcomer. Gunning also had a cadre of pals on the team. As a result, Clendenin's first days were filled with strained smiles and behind-the-back murmurs. Though he wasn't looking for adversaries, I knew these guys were discontented about me coming in, Clendenin remembers. He was right to be wary. Anyone who has faced a rival at work, a colleague threatened by your skills, a superior unwilling to acknowledge your good ideas, 
or a subordinate who undermines you knows such dynamics can prove catastrophic for your career and for your group or organization. When those with formal or informal power are fighting you, you may find it impossible to accomplish or get credit for any meaningful work. And even if you have the upper hand, an antagonistic relationship inevitably casts a cloud over you and your team, sapping energy, stymieing progress, and distracting group members from their goals. Because rivalries can be so destructive, it's not enough to simply ignore, sidestep, or attempt to contain them. Instead, effective leaders turn rivals into collaborators, strengthening their positions, their networks, and their careers in the process. Think of these relationships not as chronic illnesses you have to endure, but as wounds that must be treated in order for you to lead a healthy work life. Here we share a method called the three R's for efficiently and effectively turning your adversaries into your allies. If you execute each step correctly, you will develop new connective tissue within your organization, boosting your ability to broker knowledge and drive fresh thinking. The method is drawn from our own inductive case studies, including interviews with business leaders such as John Clendenin, who agreed to let us tell his story in this article, and from empirical research conducted by Brian and others investigating the physiology of the brain, the sociology of relationships, and the psychology of influence. Many well-intentioned efforts to reverse rivalries fail in large part because of the complex way trust operates in these relationships. Research shows that trust is based on both reason and emotion. If the emotional orientation towards a person is negative, typically because of a perceived threat, then reason will be twisted to align with those negative feelings. This is why feuds can stalemate trust. New facts and arguments, no matter how credible and logical, may be seen as ploys to dupe the other side. This effect is not just psychological, it is physiological. When we experience negative emotions, blood recedes from the thinking part of the brain, the cerebral cortex, and rushes to its oldest and most involuntary part, the reptilian stem, crippling the intake of new information. Most executives who decide they want to reverse a rivalry will quite understandably turn to reason, presenting incentives for trustworthy collaboration. But in these situations, the emotional brain must be managed before adversaries can understand evidence and be persuaded. When John Clendenin looked at Tom Gunning at Xerox, he immediately saw grounds for a strong partnership beyond a perfunctory subordinate superior relationship. Gunning had 20 years worth of organizational and technical knowledge and contacts around the company, but he lacked the leadership skills and vision that Clendenin possessed. Conversely, Clendenin understood management, but needed Gunning's expertise and connections to successfully navigate his new company. Unfortunately, Gunning's emotions were getting in the way. Clendenin needed to employ the three R's. Step one is to redirect your rival's negative emotions so that they are channeled away from you. Clendenin decided to have a one-on-one -on -one meeting with Gunning, but not in his office, because that would only remind Gunning of the promotion he'd lost. Instead, he found out where Gunning liked to eat and took him there for lunch. I was letting him know that I understood his worth, Clendenin says of this contextual redirection. 
He followed this with a plain statement of redirection, telling Gunning that a third entity beyond the control of both men was the root cause of their situation. I didn't put you in this position, Clendenin said. Xerox put us both in this position. Many executives scoff when they first hear the story, believing Clendenin's actions to be too transparent. But redirection doesn't have to be hidden. With stage magic, for example, audience members understand that redirection is happening, but that doesn't lessen their acceptance or spoil the payoff of the technique. Other personal interactions work similarly. For instance, we accept flattery even if we rec recognize it as such. Another common redirection tactic is to introduce a discussion of things you and your rival have in common, or casually portray a source of attention, a particular initiative, employee or event, in a more favorable light. It sounds obvious, but redirection will shift negative emotions away from you and lay the groundwork for step two, reciprocity. The initial principle here is to give before you ask. Undoing a negative tie begins with giving up something of value rather than asking for a fair trade. If you give and then ask for something right away in return, you don't establish a relationship, you carry out a transaction. When done correctly, reciprocity is like priming a pump. In the old days, pumps required a lot of exertion to produce any water. You had to repeatedly work a lever to eliminate a vacuum in the line before water could flow. But if you poured a small bucket of water into the line first, the vacuum was quickly eliminated, enabling the water to flow with less effort. Reciprocity with a rival works in much the same way. Reflect carefully on what you should give, and ideally choose something that reflects little effort from the other party to reciprocate. Clendenin moved from redirection to reciprocity at the lunch by promising to support Gunning's leadership development and future advancement at Xerox. But, recognizing that mere promises of future returns wouldn't be enough to spark collaboration, he also had offered Gunning something concrete, the chance to attend executive-level meetings. This was of immediate value, not a distant murky benefit. Gunning could gain visibility, credibility and connections. The arrangement also ensured reciprocity. Gunning's presence at the meetings furnished Clendenin with on-hand technical expertise and organizational knowledge, while giving him reputation points with Gunning's contacts. Thus, his offer created the purest form of reciprocity. If Gunning attended the meetings, Clendenin would never have to explicitly request a quid pro quo. Reciprocity involves considering ways that you can immediately fulfill a rival's need or reduce a pain point. Live up to your end of the bargain first, but figure out a way to ensure a return from your rival without the person's feeling that pressure. Another example comes from Brian Uzi's colleague, Adam Galinsky, who advises leaders in contentious restructurings and business closings to generate goodwill among outgoing employees by offering professional references or placements at other companies as long as the employees continue to meet or exceed expectations until their office closes. The employees see immediate value, and although they don't consciously pay back the organization, the firm nonetheless benefits by maintaining continuity in its workforce until the scheduled closure. 
Similarly, a colleague who helps an adversary complete a project or a subordinate who stays overtime to finish a task for a difficult boss not only helps that individual but can reap rewards when other teammates or superiors benefit from that effort also. Here, the judicious giving before asking sets a foundation for reciprocity with third parties, whose buy-in can positively assist in reshaping adversarial relationship. Step 3, Rationality, establishes the expectations of the fledgling relationship you've built using the previous steps, so that your efforts don't come off as dishonest or as ineffective pandering. What would have happened if Clendenin had left the lunch without explaining how he wanted to work with Gunning going forward? Gunning might have begun to second-guess his new boss's intentions and resumed his adversarial stance. If a rival is worried about the other shoes dropping, his emotional unease can undermine the trust you've built. To employ rationality, Glendennon told Gunning that he needed him, or someone like him, to reach his goals at Xerox. This made it clear that he saw Gunning as a valuable but not indispensable partner. Another softer approach might have involved Glendennon's giving Gunning the right of first refusal to collaborate with him, making the offer seem special while judiciously indicating that there were others who could step in. To be clear, Clendenin was not asking Gunning for a specific favour in exchange for the one he'd granted in Step 2. He was simply saying that he wanted him to become an ally. Clendenin also reinforced the connection between the three steps by making his offer time-limited, which raised the perception of the value of the deal without changing its content. He told Gunning he needed an answer before they left the restaurant. I needed to nip this in the bud, Clendenin recalls. He knew I didn't care if we sat in that restaurant until midnight if we had to. When rationality follows redirection and reciprocity, it should push your adversary into considering the situation from a reasoned standpoint, fully comprehending the expectations and benefits, and recognizing that he's looking at a valued opportunity that could be lost. Most people are highly motivated to avoid a loss, which complements their desire to gain something. Rationality is like offering medicine after a spoonful of sugar. It ensures that you're getting the benefit of the shifted negative emotions and any growing positive ones which otherwise diffuse over time. And it avoids the ambiguity that clouds expectations and feedback when flattery and favours come one day and demands the next. Of course, Clendenin and Gunning did not walk out of the res restaurant as full-blown collaborators but both accepted that they should give each other the benefit of the doubt. Over the following weeks, this new mindset allowed them to work as allies, a process that deepened trust and resource-sharing in a self-reinforcing cycle. So, a potentially debilitating rivalry was transformed into a healthy working relationship and, in time, a strong partnership. Several years later, when Clendenin moved to another Xerox unit, he nominated Gunning as his replacement, and Gunning excelled in the position. The foundation for that remarkable shift had been established during the span of a single lunch. And there's the three ways to deal with rivals, and no doubt there are others. But we must leave the program there for today and say farewell for now, time is up. Thanks for being with us, and please do tune in again next time. Meanwhile, dedicate any positive potential from the program 
to gaining enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. Thanks and goodbye. For more episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio or Apple Podcasts. This free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.